Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. As always, a huge, huge thanks to everyone who has been reading my new novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. It's available from all bookshops. Your local bookshop is probably open for click and collect. My local, the Margot Bookshop, delivers nationwide, and if you order from them, I can do you a signed copy. It's also great to hear that you've been listening to my brand new podcast, Daisy is Insatiable, a conversation about all of our appetites and desires with a range of different guests. Listen out for this week's new episode with YB alumni Holly Bourne. You can find this on iTunes, Acast, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Now, crossing all of my fingers and toes, I'm really hoping to see some of you at the Bath Literary Festival. Caleb, Azuma, Nelson and I will be talking about our debut novels at a socially distant event on Friday the 21st of May. Tickets are going on sale soon. And I will be at the brand new EA Festival at Headingham Castle on Sunday the 1st of August, talking about sex with the erotic review founder and icon Rowan Pelling. I'm sure you'll understand these events are all taking place subject to what's best for public health and safety. The organisers will be ensuring that everything is as safe as possible. I am cautiously giddy with excitement and I really hope to see some of you there for some big book chats. Now, on to today's guest. Patricia Cornwell is a literary powerhouse. She is an iconic crime writer whose books are often the first spark of fans' obsession with the genre. Patricia's most beloved character, Kay Scarpetta, has her own army of fans and a cookbook. Patricia has sold over a hundred million novels. She is an expert on everything from history to AI. And for her latest book, Spin, she went to NASA to do her research. Our conversation took place shortly after the Capitol riots in January 2021, which we mention alongside Dickens, Dinners and the Role of Robots. Callie Chase, I hope it's all right to call her a badass. I think for me she is a feminist inspiration. And I was wondering, in 
books, whether that's fiction or non-fiction, are there any figures that you've read about who've inspired you with their bravery? Oh, yes, but um, the ones that have inspired me the most, yeah, I'm a big non-fiction person, probably because, I, I don't know, I started out in journalism. My first book was non-fiction, and probably a lot of people, and, you know, of course, Jack the Ripper is non-fiction that I wrote, um, and people probably don't know how much I love things like biographies um, and, and the characters. And uh, You want to know who I think is the biggest badass woman there ever was? Cleopatra. Oh, great Re- answer. If you read about her, Stacey Schiff's book about her, I think she won a Pulitzer Prize for that, which she most assuredly deserved. An extraordinary, um, I mean, this woman living way back then, Cleopatra, I think she spoke like about seven languages. Um, she was the greatest ruler of the world at that time. Um, she would. She was doing things with science before anybody else. I mean, she was doing firework displays on her barge, you know, special effects. I mean, one of the things that people might be very surprised about if they would dig into some stories that were written long ago or even written recently um, about people from long ago is you might be very surprised about folks who lived hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago that in some ways might've been even a little more sophisticated than we are today. It's really something. Uh, Socrates is another one. I think you're right. I often think about what we consider now when we think about technology and how technology is, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old and how it's just something that humans keep reaching for and using to understand the world. And they have found archaeological, you know, remains that are very curious of, of gadgets and things that go back in what would be considered Um, certainly not a modern era, thousands and thousands of years ago. And what we don't know is how many things have not survived. Um, Think of what wouldn't survive today if if we suddenly had, you know, if a civilization got buried for some reason or went underwater or who knows what. But I've gotten exceedingly interested in some of these figures of old. And believe it or not, it was space that brought me there. Because when I started doing a lot of research about I started thinking, like, what do the ancients have to say about space? Everybody's been looking up forever, and they have their own ideas. And even the Bible, you know, has references to things that you might, um, you might think could have to do with, with somebody seeing a rocket going up when Ezekiel goes up in a whirlwind of fire in the Bible. <clears throat> There's all kinds of stories that make you wonder. And I'll give you a good example. Plato um, is the was basically was the spokesperson for Socrates. Socrates never wrote a thing. He, I mean, isn't that amazing? He didn't write anything down. And what we know that he said is because of others, mainly Plato, who recorded his, you know, wrote down his words. And one thing that's extraordinary is this, you know, I think Plato, excuse me, Socrates died around 309, 399 BC or something like that, a very long time ago, in other words. But yet, he describes what the Earth looks like from outer space. He describes it as a ball, like a lot of leather patches of different colors sewn together, like like the type of toys or athletic balls they might have had back in his day. And I'm you thinking, now hold on a second. How could he know what that looks like? You could climb the highest mountain and you cannot see that the Earth is round. You have to get way above it, like where the space station is, um, you know, so how did these people know these things back then before the telescope was invented that we know of? So that's another great book. Is um, It's not a, a, it's not a happy uh, title. It's called The Hemlock Cup. 
by Bettany Hughes about Socrates, about, about his death and why. And it's very, I've read that during the pandemic. And it's a really important book because it discusses a lot of the very things that are going haywire today. What happens if you have mob rule that you could put somebody like Socrates to death because he's corrupting the minds of the youth because he's teaching them to think for themselves, which is exactly what people need to do today. Uh, I couldn't agree more. That's a very powerful answer. Um, I'd love to ask you a little bit about your relationship with books and reading and how that started. It sounds like some, you're someone who's always had a real passion for knowledge and more understanding. Well, you know, the weird thing about it is, and I, I almost hate to admit this, but it's the truth. My fascination with books has been more about making them than about reading them. I started making books when I was probably four or five or six years old, where I'd write stories with crayons and I'd draw pictures, and then I'd get pieces of cardboard and I'd put a, make a cover, um, and I'd sew it together, like with a shoelace, I would bind it. Unfortunately, my mother... Um, you know, it was just more clutter around the house because I would sit in the living room doing this all the time. So they're all gone. I don't, I don't have any of those early works, which we know would be worth a fortune, not. But, um, you know, I, I, I landed on this planet being a storyteller. That's what, so I've always been fascinated by stories. And when I was little, um, the earliest books I would read, and I can't tell you the titles, but I remember one in particular, it was some mysterious book, and there's little kids going through a dark house with a flashlight, um, and I would get, I was very, had a very spooky imagination, and so um, I've always said if I wrote my memoir, I'd call it all of a sudden, because that was the phrase that I used it so often, you know, somebody walked under a street light and all of a sudden, all of a sudden. Um, and my fourth grade teacher finally said, you use that, ter- that, that phrase too often. You <laughs> Your first I, note. I want to scare people. I want to startle them. So I read the boxcar children series when I was little. I loved those, it, those kinds of stories where kids were kind of making do themselves they're managing and those kids were badass because you know you're living in a box car and you're managing without parents and I found that series very comforting um I read weird things like books on archaeology because I wanted to be an archaeologist at one point so but but then I got involved in sports and other things tennis probably didn't read as much and I'm um and I'm certainly I do not consider myself a an expert at all in literature but I am intrigued by people and um, I, you know, I, and I love to read about the lives that have gone before us. I'm assuming if you did go into space, if one did, there'd be lots and lots of things to occupy time and things to think about and focus about. And you probably wouldn't have much reading time. But indulge me, if you were going into space and you knew there was going to be a fair bit of reading time, uh, which books would you want to take up with you? Well, I'd take Hemingway's A Movable Feast because I think that's my favorite book. Um, it's certainly my favorite book of all um, he wrote, even though he allegedly didn't finish it. You know, I think it's only 144 pages long, but oh my Lord, the stories that he tells about Ezra Pound and, and these, uh, you know, or Fitzgerald, you know, they're, they're driving in a convertible and it starts raining and they can't get the top off. So he and his competitor Fitzgerald pull over under a bridge or drinking wine out of the bottle. And I'm thinking, what amazing stories about these people. And I'd want to take that with me. Um, 
along with that, another book that I would read again, uh, again about Hemingway is the one that Paul Hendricks, Hendrickson wrote about called Hemingway's Boat. Um, I don't know if, it, oh, what a, an amazing tale. Um, the, you know, it's, he takes the metaphor of the boat that Hemingway was so notorious for going out in and fishing and shooting sharks and doing all the madness that he did. Um, but it becomes a, a story about his life. And I, I found it so intriguing, the details about this literary giant um, who, who has some of the finest writing I've ever read in terms of being able to describe things with the clarity of a beautiful photograph. You see it, he's like a cinematographer. Um, and, the, and so I have studied Hemingway. I, when, when I talk about taking books, one of the things I do is I study books that are really, really good. I look at what works and, and, and try to figure out what I can learn from it. You know, th things that are exquisitely well told. Um, you, you can, like some of Dickens' work, for example, he's another one. And, and um, I read his biography that Claire Tomlin did which is extraordinary. So I'd probably take these. I'd probably take Cleopatra up there with me too. In fact, she's already probably been up there. She probably knows more about space than we do. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're probably right. I, I really, I mean, Cleopatra, let's be honest, you know, when we get back to the mothership, she's going to be sitting there on the bridge, you know it as well as I do. <laughs> Passing judgment or not, she's got it all planned out. She knows what she's doing. Um, what I love about that selection of books is that Initially, they seem so different, but they really are all very much stories about humanity and how we live and how we might be able to do it better or at least understand it better. So well said. You are exactly right, because that is the point. Why do we write books? Why do we read books? Why do we write stories? Why do we write them? Because without stories, we do not have a map. We have no navigation system. We are we are in the dark with no way to even know where the walls are. Stories tell us who we were, who we are, who we can be, and without them, we are lost. And whether it's Bible stories or mythologies or biographies of people that would seem so inaccessible like, like Cleopatra or Socrates, but you know, even thousands of years ago, not that long ago, not really, because when you read what these people have to say, we can learn from them today. I learned a lot from reading about Dickens because um, he's my role model for a very simple reason. He never stopped being a storyteller, even though he became the most famous author there ever was, and deservedly so. But that man, he knew what he was here to do, and he never got distracted from it. I mean, he couldn't even go around in the neighborhoods without writing down things and, and eventually came out with two dictionaries or basically encyclopedias. If you want to know everything about the Thames, Dickens had a dictionary on it, not really a dictionary, more encyclopedia. If you want to know everything about living in London, he did one of those two that were later published posthumously by his namesake son. Um, and so that's a role model for me. And I wish I had learned that better when I was getting started, because when I became, you know, when the rich and famous stuff started up early on, I think there are times I might have gotten a bit distracted from um, what I'm supposed to be doing here. And I think I would say to all authors, whether you're just getting started or you're, you've been out there for a while and, and people know who you are, just remember why you're here. It's not about us. It's about telling the story, whatever it may be, so that we know 
what to do. And now of all times, we need stories that might better guide us and, and give us hope. Because that's one thing that people, you know, they're really hurting and people need hope badly. I truly do. Um, I'd love to know more about when you started reading Dickens. And, you know, I don't want to ask you to pick a favourite novel, but if there is one that feels the most resonant for you or has brought you the most kind of comfort and joy while reading. I love his Christmas Carol. I mean, who couldn't? Scrooge and the magical characters this man um, created. And, and most of all, he knew human nature. I mean, he grew up in a pauper's jail, you know, because of his father and then had to work in a factory, a, a shoe blacking factory as a kid. Um, and this, this guy, he, you know, he, he understands human nature and he, and he found ways in his work to show his intolerance for inhumanity, whether it's Oliver Twist, of course, who doesn't love that one, or whether it's Ebenezer Scrooge, um, you know, uh, these are, that's what we're supposed to do is you, you show people, you know, I, I was taught in literature class or English class in college, you know, you're not supposed to be didactic. So you don't get up there and wag your finger and say, you can't be cruel to children and, and you can't be a Grinch, so to speak. Um, better to show by example, show stories. We must do that. And now more than ever, we must do that because people, I think people are lost. I think they don't know who they are anymore. I think what happened at our, you know, it's happened in Washington last week is a good example. That when you have mobs doing this kind of nonsense, people don't know who they are and who we're supposed to be. We are not supposed to behave as primitives. We are not. Um, and Socrates would tell you that, and so would Cleopatra. You don't have to be living in the BC to know that we're acting a lot more primitive than, than any of those folks ever thought of acting. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We'll be back to Patricia soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. It's a book I've mentioned quite a lot on this podcast, Tales of the City by Armistead Mopan. 
I recently sought this out again as a comfort read. I loved it when I was 13 and I love it even more at 36. It was published in the 70s. It is a hymn to San Francisco. Originally, it was written as a daily newspaper serial. It sings, it buzzes, it's uncompromisingly bawdy, adorable, hilarious, dark and tender. If I were to give anyone writing advice, it would be to read this book, to reread it and to read it again. I think Armistead Mopan is the greatest writer of dialogue we will ever know. And... I know this is a recurring theme with me at the moment when I do the Steal of the Week, but the only way I'm able to face staying indoors in 2021 is by vicariously experiencing the crazed hedonism of Northern California in 1976. Tales of the City by Armistead Mopan is published by Transworld and out now. Now, back to Patricia. I really should be able to cite this study and where it comes from, so um, listeners... Um, Please, uh, everyone, forgive me. Um, but I understand um, some studies have been made that suggest that reading builds empathy, and that the more we read, the the kinder we are. And I think I really believe that reading and reading extensively and as broadly as we can, if there's any kind of cure for what ails us, it might be that. Yes, yes, yes. Reading. I, I totally agree with you. I've not heard that before, but it makes sense to me because if I, I mean, if you don't have empathy, you cannot enjoy a book. And if you don't have empathy, you can't write a good one. Plain and simple, because everything is about how we feel. We are stuck with that. We are, we are biological creatures. We are, we, this is our spacesuit we walk around in and it can get burned. It can get cut. It can get its feelings hurt. It can be jealous. It can be, you know, it can mourn. It can grieve. Um, it can be a megalomaniac. It can be anything. But what we are inside, whether you call it the soul or the spirit, um, whatever that is that, that we are, that makes us who we are, um, we are expected to rise above just the, the creature that we inhabit. Otherwise, we're just going to go around with sticks and stones and, and do what those people did at the Capitol the other day. Um, that, that's like a bunch of wild animals, only worse. And so... Um, we reading, uh, I think it's, it's good for so many reasons, uh, empathy. Look, we need to care about people besides ourselves and reading introduces <clears throat> other characters. I've often said to people, you know, like when I'm talking about Scarpetta or if we talk about Captain Chase, Callie and Karma, these NASA cyber ninja wizards who go into space, the, the biggest question that I always pose is this, what does it feel like to be you? What does it feel like to be a medical examiner? <clears throat> what does it feel like to be an astronaut? What does it feel like to be a scientific genius or to be one who's not and who has to struggle um, like I did taking science and, and math? In fact, they took me to the cleaners, I might say, because I'm no good at either one. Uh, but yet I still can write about it, which should be inspiring for people. But um, I hope that people will read more and but you know, I'm also hopeful that there can be good television and movies, anything that tells the stories that help us. Not we're entertained, but we're we're being reprogrammed, maybe in good ways. That's what we can hope for. I think you're absolutely right. That you know, that's what being moved is, I suppose, isn't it? Yes. To to come in and know that you're not going to stay at a fixed point, that you're going to 
allow a story to transport you and maybe change you for the better, whatever form that story takes. You know, you've just stumbled upon possibly a very interesting scientific idea, which maybe is already being done. But you know, the great challenge with artificial intelligence is empathy. How do you teach a machine to feel? Well, that's a good question, except we're not really sure what feelings are. And I, and I pose the question and spin, you know, where do feelings begin? Where does programming end and do feelings begin? You know, that's, and if you think about it, it's not easy to answer if you really analyze it. But if you're going to have artificial intelligence, particularly with quantum computing capabilities, which aren't too far down the road, um, I would make sure that AI read had quite a reading list. Let's give the artificial intelligence a reading list. Um, and, but let's be careful what we let it read. Some things I don't want it to read. I don't want it reading Hitler's book. Okay. So let's give it a really great reading list um, and see if we can, I mean, we got to teach these machines empathy because without it, imagine if you've got the robots that we're seeing today. And if you don't, if you haven't looked on the internet to see some of these robots, they are unbelievable doing backflips and stuff, the likes of which we could never do as humans, perfect every time. Um, you don't want one of these chasing you down the street because it thinks you're supposed to be arrested. Um, and, and it's got an algorithm that it's operated on. And it unfortunately has a variable in there that shows that you grew up in a federal housing project. So that makes you dangerous. Well, um, no, meanwhile, it's the mayor you're chasing down the street. So what if he or she grew up in the federal housing project, but no empathy. You can't, you can't look something in the eye and go, wait a minute. I'm not sure that this algorithm fits this right here. I think the math is wrong. This person doesn't, I'm not seeing in the eyes here or what they're saying, something that adds up, meaning that I should shoot them. I think, yeah, you're so right that a reading list is very wise. I was thinking one of the first books I'd love to give the robots in terms of promoting empathy and a direct response to the world we're living in at the moment. I loved that book, um, An American Marriage by Tayari Jones, which is about a miscarriage of justice and the human implications of that. I know we've talked about um, Dickens, so obviously the robots are getting all of Dickens and all of your books. Uh, what else shall we give them? Um, there, another wonderful biography is uh, Queen Victoria, A.N. Wilson, um, now that's another person who you talk. Now she was a badass. Holy smoke, Queen Victoria! Let me tell you something. I'm such a fan of hers. That, now I don't mean to be irreverent, but a pair of her knickers went on auction, and I had to buy them. And they're framed in a shadow box. Her, her that that were in my crime library until I had to pack it up with the pandemic coming. But she, what an amazing, forward-thinking, scientifically-minded woman who even had her own ideas about how to stop Jack the Ripper. And if people had listened to her, it might have, it probably would have helped. Um, but that's a great book. And again, I would give that to artificial intelligence. I want AI to read about Queen Victoria. I want Socrates, um, Hemingway's boat. Maybe you'll learn some of the naughty things you don't do if you read about Hemingway for real. Um, we definitely want AI to read about Cleopatra. Um, so, you know, learning from these greats who changed history for us, and particularly women, you know, why is it we had female leaders like that way, way long ago, and we have so few of them today? <laughs> That's weird to me. Um, a fun fiction book that I discovered just because I was kept hearing about it is the girl on the train, Paula Hawkins, uh, because I love what she 
she she has a way of you talk about getting into the emotionality of a character and the empathy of it that you you almost can't put it down because you're so curious about what's going on i thought her narrative style was very interesting um, because the whole notion of the unreliable narrator, which has become kind of a big thing of late, is, is really cool. It harkens back to long ago, the sort of things you heard about in literary uh, classes about whether a, a narrator telling the story, are we to believe this person or not believe this person? And I hadn't seen that done um, quite the way it was in, in her book and Paula Hawkins' book. And I, I, uh, I really found that very intriguing and you know I learn from people that do new things I like to study what they do I guess that's a kind of you know way of using technology isn't it you know it's all ideas and us sharing ideas and once they're out there and I think there are so many sources of inspiration and I definitely think that's a book that is so so compulsive and it's such an immersive universe you know you're in and you can't get out and as soon as you've read it you want to read it again to find out how how Paula Hawkins did it well, she has an eye for metaphor, and that's really powerful. When people give you images that somehow resonate on a deeper level, like like the, 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 the clothing, it opens with this stuff that's just by the railroad tracks, and you go, oh, my God, it seems ominous. What is that? But these images um, stick with you. And, you know, I tell when people ask my advice about writing, one of the things I, I always say is if you really want to write, you need to read poetry, you need to try to write poetry because you need to learn about the rhythm of words, not just the literal words, but the music that you want to you, you want to use um, because that's what carries, that's what causes people to sort of flow with your thoughts. So it's really important that you do that. Poetry is a great way and it teaches you the power of metaphor, of images, so that you sometimes are actually, you are instructing the subconscious of the person who's reading this because they're picking up on things uh, that are not necessarily all that obvious or might represent something else. So I, you know, read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland if you want to see um, somebody who does beautiful things with images. And, and yes, it's a poem, but look at the rhythm of it. It's sort of prose and a poem, but it's, it's some of it almost reads like prose, but it, it, th these, this is the engineering that goes behind great writing. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize that, that there is an art to this and a science to it. Yes, I love the ambition of the wasteland and that it's so beautiful and so specific. It's not just about, it's such an amazing thing to do, as you said, the musicality and the, the sounding and the rhythm of the words, but also that it's so pure and sharp and there is no mistaking what he wants us to feel and see. That's right. And, and these things, you hear phrases in poetry that, that will, that always come back to you when there's something going on, like, uh, you know, I measuring your life in coffee spoons, you know, and I said to, you know, to, to Stacy, my partner, when early into the, you know, we're in the pandemic and you start losing track of time every day is kind of Groundhog Day the same. And I said, you know, and I was taking some supplement and, you know, and, and I looked at the supplement, the pills were all gone. And, and I said, now I'm now measuring my life in these supplements I take, you know, you push one out of the, the little package. It's like the coffee spoons where the only thing that causes it to register much that time is going by is the 
simple little acts like that that you do daily. And I suppose that's uh, books at their most powerful when you can describe something as grand and kind of unknown and terrifying and mysterious and thrilling as space, but then bring it back down to those really microscopic but very human moments that we can connect with. And I suppose that's what T.S. Eliot does and what you do. Well, listen, you know, space is a big vacuum. Um, and if you don't have people, if you're telling a story about space without people, uh, I don't think there's much to say. And this will be a very cold, austere world. Um, you're dealing with, you know, shiny objects that are traveling, you know, at, at enormous speeds or orbiting around the planet. And um, all of that is fun if you've got people involved. And with spin, um, the, the challenge, you know, you, Cali Chase doesn't go into space until the end. And that's, the, you know, it's building to that, but that's not what the story's about. The story's about she's up against a formidable enemy, you know, Dr. Neva Wrong, who's sort of like the Darth Vader of the tech billionaires today. And, um, you know, that person wants to dominate the planet because from space you can do that with satellites. Um, that is why we have Space Force. You know, that's why we have these cyber investigators and cyber ninjas, as they're called. So, but you've got to have the humanity. What does it feel like to get up in the morning and put on your NASA Protective Services uniform, which includes a gun, even though you're a scientist, a quantum physicist, and drive your pickup truck to work when you've got a rocket launch about to go off that involves a quantum node that is a, pro a project of yours that the astronauts were supposed to install. And then lo and behold, NASA gets hacked, the rocket blows up, the astronauts on the spacewalk lose contact with Houston. Well, welcome to Captain Chase's world. That's her boots on the ground. That's, that's the kind of stuff she's got to deal with before she ever gets into her, her you know, tricked out dream chaser space plane and goes up there to find out what's happening in the geostationary orbit 22,000 miles above Earth. But it's about people, people, people. Uh, my next question is very much about people. Um, Something I love so much about uh, Kate Scarpetta as a character, and I know I'm not alone in this, is her passion for really great food. And that's uh -huh. such a big part of of her life, and I think a reader's relationship with her. And I know you've written uh, two cookbooks. And I'd love to know about the food writers you love to read, whether that's sort of, you know, recipe books and people who are full-time food writers or any novelist or anyone who you think just does it beautifully. That's a very good question. But, uh, you know, I, I, I go back to Hemingway. Now, he didn't write cookbooks, obviously, but his descriptions of food and when he's making his absinthe drinks at the table, if you read The Garden of Eden, um, it's one of his lesser known books that came out, I believe, posthumously. Um, and it's a little cobbled together, sort of, it seems, but but some of the writing in it, and he describes these meals when he's on his honeymoon and this big fish he caught and exactly the way it's cooked. And you, I mean, you can sit there and taste it when he's drinking his gazpacho in some, you know, little place that, that he and his, his wife have gone to. Uh, I, so I love, I think food is really important in books and it's satisfying if you can describe it in a way that's intriguing. Um, and then you can also be, uh, funny about it, like in the book Heartburn long, long ago, that was, you know, hysterical about food. But, you know, I have to have food in the Scarpetta books, because guess what, if I don't, I get complaints from my readers. Um, <laughs> so a couple uh, some years ago, I heard that and I didn't know. And I she'd been too busy to do much cooking. And I was writing Red Mist and she was stranded down in Savannah, Georgia, um, because of what was going on down there. 
And um, I said, well, you know what? She's going to have to set up a kitchen in her hotel room. I'm sorry, because if she doesn't cook something, damn it. I mean, I'll never hear the end of it from my readers, even though she's not home and doesn't have a kitchen right now. So I had to build a kitchen for her. Oh, I love it. And I think that's such a compliment to your writing. And I think that it's the the rhythm of the book, isn't it? That, you know, you've got someone who is so, so sort of beloved and cared about that, like, she needs nourishment, she needs to do that thing she loves. But also, I think that when you have something so, either books that are very thrilling and really action packed, and when people stop to break bread, as a reader, yes. you've got to t- you break bread with them and you can kind of get your breath. And it's as important as kind of pacing and timing and comedy. But then equally, I love novels that are very quiet when not a lot happens um, over the pandemic. Lots of people I know in the UK were rereading um, Elizabeth Jane Howard's um, Catholic Chronicles. And they're very much about the fear and anxiety during the Second World War, but also the boredom and really... At, you know, during a very scary time, having so little to do and meals propel you forward when there's not much else. That's exactly right. Stacey and I call it food porn these days because we call our friends and they, every time they say, so what's for supper? Everybody wants to hear about food. I mean, we call it food porn. That is what's happened in the pandemic in that it's like, oh, I, I'll tell my friends, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but Stacy's made her chili and famous garlic bread. Oh, no, don't tell us that. We wish we were there. So, and it's true because she's an amazing cook. But yeah, it's, it's you know, when it, I try to give, I try to think about my readers' fantasies. And, and there are a couple things that I, that those who are huge fans of Scarpetta in particular, there's two things that come to mind. I think, you know, if she were real, wouldn't that be cool if you looked up and you found out she was sitting next to you on an airplane and you had three hours to talk to Kay Scarpetta? I'd even like to do that. I've never sat next to her on an airplane either. Um, or what about if, better yet, you, she invited you over to her house for dinner and she's making bread and homemade pasta and some really nice sauce on the stove um, and, and pouring wine and, and everything she does is with her hands. She to show you that literally you used to term break bread. What she's doing is she's breaking bread with the readers and saying, we are together in this. You may think I'm a fantasy character, but as long as you listen to me and believe what I'm saying, I'm as real as I need to be. So let's have dinner. And she's happy to have dinner with my, my readers. And in the new book I'm working on right now, we'll make sure that happens again. Oh, can you give us any uh, previews of food we can look forward to? Or is that all... Um, under embargo no I'm you know I'm just the thing is I haven't gotten to the food yet because I'm in the early stages this book is coming out the end of the year the new Scarpetta um and so I don't have any great food in it but yet I will but there is some pretty good food in spin for two reasons General Melville's wife he's the commander of Space Force she has a cooking show on TV and um she is, and so I describe some of her amazing recipes that are, by the way, are, almost none are low in calorie. And same <laughs> thing, Callie's mother, uh, who is a NASA educator, she she cooks some mean stuff in the kitchen too, and everybody loves her food. And that's part of what Penny Chase does. Um, she takes food around to the neighbors. Um, she makes really, you know, things like mac and cheese and it might have some special kind of meat or some kind of barbecue or she's really good with the fryer um so 
and, and homemade bread. And so if you go to the Chase Kitchen, not only are, if you drive up to the Chase's old farm on the river in Tidewater, Virginia, near Nassau Langley, um, you're going to see all these little blue lights in the trees because uh, Penny Chase, the mom, loves lights. And if you walk in, the minute you get through that door, you're going to smell something good in the kitchen and she's going to take care of you. And so I think, you know, I want to feed my readers. I want to keep them warm. I want them to be scared when they need to be and cold when they should. And the rest of the time, I want them to just really be enjoying themselves. I don't think we could ask for anything more than that, but it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I just loved hearing you talking about books and life. Thank you. Huge thanks to Patricia. Spin is published by Thomas and Mercer and it's out now. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review and do tell any book-loving friends who might enjoy having this in your ears also. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Patricia on acast.com booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from Diana Vreeland. Where would fashion be without literature? See you next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.